You take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and as you do, I want to uh, just give a <clears throat> quick plug to something that's going to be happening uh, here um, next week, and that's the Seeds concert. Um, this, uh, I guess it's now been uh, two weeks ago, um, we uh, had the Andrew Peterson concert, and uh, I had a couple people come up to me and say, man, I heard the concert was phenomenal. I heard it was just absolutely outstanding. I heard this place was packed, and it was just a great night to be a part of. Why didn't you tell us it was going to be that? great so that we could be a part of it. Well, I, I want to remind you that we don't do things that we say, you know, we'll advertise this to the people and it's, it's okay. It's maybe some people will like it, some people won't. When we uh, do things as a church and when uh, the leadership tells you about things, we want you to know you don't want to miss it. And uh, we want you to know we're, we're canceling our Sunday night events, not so that you can have a, a night away, but so that you can be a part of something great. And we don't want you to miss it. We don't want you to come back after the fact when you hear how great of a time it was that you say, why didn't you tell us it was great? I'm going to be here. It's going to be a great time. It always is when I'm here, right? Amen. And, uh, and we want you to be a part of it. So there are some computers um, out in the foyer that you can quickly register for, for tickets. You, you don't want to miss it. So make sure you dedicate some time. I believe it starts around uh, 6 o'clock on um, a Sunday night, and just a great time, young and old. They were here some time ago, and we had a full sanctuary and a great time of worship and praise, learning as to how we can uh, memorize Scripture with the form of music so that we can hide the truth of God's Word in our hearts. So make sure you don't miss out on it. Bring your family, bring your friends. It's something you don't want to miss. So uh, make sure you're a part of that. Now let's turn our attention to 1 Samuel 17. We've been in a series that we've entitled as our, our video show showed uh, a series that we've entitled, entitled Shattered, uh, looking at when life goes to pieces. And, and we've spent some time now, two months to be exact, where we have journeyed through the book of 1 Samuel, examining the lives of broken people. It hasn't been the easiest, most fun um, series that we've done, because we're looking at messed up seasons in people's lives where people were struggling, dealing with dysfunctions, dealing with trials and tribulations, maybe because of no fault of their own, or maybe because of disobedience where, where an individual has continually sinned against God and, and his ways. And, and we focus on that last part predominantly these last couple weeks where we've looked at the first king of Israel, the King Saul. And King Saul was a disobedient guy. While he had all of seemingly all the human reasons to succeed, he was a failure when it came to obeying the word and way of the Lord. And, and what we see in God's grace is God gives him opportunity upon opportunity to right the ship. Gives him opportunity after opportunity, places him in difficult circumstances, thinking, if I put this guy in these circumstances, at some point he's going to cling to me. At some point he's going to run to me. And what we learn over and over again, blinded by his sin and pride, Saul forfeits God's blessing and leading in his life. And he fails time and time again. And what we're going to learn today is yet again, Saul has another failure. And even to make it worse, he's going to learn that there's going to be another who's going to take his place. And that that other is going to be one who's going to faithfully follow the will and ways of God. Now we come to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, and we learn that God once again is wanting to teach his people that they don't have to live shattered lives. You see, before Saul this morning is going to be a giant, 
And in a very famous passage of Scripture, we are going to look at this passage of Scripture through the lens that we will call shattered confidence. And so we'll look at this famous passage, hopefully getting some fresh perspective along the way. I'm going to have you turn to 1 Samuel 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be on page 239. For the uh, sake of your legs and your feet, I'm going to have you stay seated for the reading of God's Word as I'm going to read a long passage. And the reason why, I had a great video I wanted to show you. I mean, gladiator-esque, the story of David and Goliath. But with anything that we do with Hollywood, we miss parts of the story. And I want to be careful that we see all of the story because many of us would say we are aware of the story, but we're aware of someone else telling us the story. And I want us this morning to hear the story out of God's mouth himself. And so uh, bear with me as we're going to read an entire chapter out of the scripture. I'm not the best reader. Don't make fun of how I pronounce certain things. But let's hear what God has to say about that fateful day when the armies of Israel fought against the armies of the Philistines. First Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soco, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soco and Azekah in Ephesus, Damon. And Saul and the men were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. And Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David, the son of an Ephorite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons, in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. The next to him was Abinadab. And the third was Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three eldest had followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son, Take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. 
and take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he went to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the luggage and ran to the uh, ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and said the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, David's older brother, heard when David spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against his brother David when he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and he spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words of, that David had spoke were heard, they, were repeated them, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of this man. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And then if he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be the like, like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward, and, the, and he came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And, Philistine, and the Philistine said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that this is an assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his hand uh, into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took out his sword, drew it out from its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued uh, the Philistines as far as Gath at the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shuram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Israel. But he put his armor in the tent. Let's pray. Father God, what an incredible story you've recorded in Scripture. Now, Lord, I pray that the familiarity of this story will not keep us from new truths and new application that we can apply to our lives so that we may honor you. I pray for each person here and, and the confidence that maybe they have or the lack of confidence that they have in you, Lord, wherever their confidence may be, that it would be like David, centered and secured on your work and on your word. Now, Lord, go before us as you did David, teaching us all that you have from this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As one looks at this text before us, a secular historian, after reading the text, said this has to be one of the greatest stories ever told. This story has been used to describe all kinds of situations, from the battlefield to the political arena, even to sporting events. It's a story that far too many of us no doubt have experienced, whether in real life or in some sort of metaphor. The famous story of a young boy who stands up against all odds and defeats the giant that is before him. In some ways, you get goosebumps just thinking about it. This battle has been forever immortalized by the phrase, it's a David versus Goliath battle. We marvel at the symbolism that gives us hope amidst such odds. Yet as we look at this incredible story we do so through a lens that we have for the rest, for the begin, from the beginning of this series. As we look at David and Goliath, we look at it through the theme of shattered. Our series has not been one of victory and joy, but one of loss and brokenness, where dysfunction and despair have carried the day. 
We are told once again in our text that the nation of Israel is at war with the Philistines. And they are ready to destroy the nation of Israel. And they are ready to take them on and to take them as the victor into slavery. But they come up with a conventional idea of warfare. One that seems odd to us, but one that was very real and and a part of warfare in the day. It was called the concept of the war of one. Goliath says, hey, I've got an idea. We'll bring our best guy out. You bring your best guy out. We'll have a fight. And whoever wins in that one-on-one fight will be the victor. Now, why would you do this? It would allow or enable less bloodshed to take place. And so they would have the best and the strongest come to the middle of the battlefield. And depending on who won that battle would determine which army was the victor. Now, the Philistines seemingly strike gold with this strategy because they know whom they have in their ranks. And they know that the one that's going to fight for them is unbeatable. And then we begin to see in our text the Israelites losing confidence that they will ever have a victory over their sworn enemies. So it is with the shattered lens that we look first at shattered confidence and then its cure. I want to do so this morning under three headings. I want to look at the, sh- the categories of confidence that are in this world, the challenges to our confidence, and the characteristics of godly confidence. So let's look at them one at a time. Notice, first of all, the categories of confidence. Within our text this morning, we are going to be introduced to some characters, some who are brand new to our series, others that have been seen over and over again. And each of them shows us a picture into who we might be this morning. So let's begin, first of all, with our first character this morning, gloating Goliath. Gloating Goliath. Here in 1 Samuel 17, we are given the first mention of this man. And boy, does it have a lot to say about him. Look to me at verses um, verses 4 through 10. We are told a couple things about this man. Just notice as I kind of skim along in our text. There came a man, and, and his title is champion. You don't get the name champion without having victories in your past. We are told that he has a height of six cubits and a span. A cubit uh, was the distance between your elbow and the top of your fingertips. And so he was six of these and then some. We'll talk about that in a moment. We are told that this guy has all kinds of armor, a helmet of bronze on his head. He's got a coat of armor. He's got shin guards of armor. He's got a javelin and he's got a spear. This guy's got weaponry. He is ready to go to battle. And I wonder what the scene was like when this man steps up into the valley and shows himself. I wonder what the Israelites were thinking. Hey, guys, do you see that thing? What is that? There's something moving. It's coming down the slope. Man, that thing is big. And the closer he got, they began to say, hey, your guy's not big. He's huge. Whatever it is, it's covered with all kinds of glittering bronze. It looks like a tank, except there wasn't tanks back in the day. By the time that thing got to the middle of the battlefield, the men of Israel began to shudder. That's the biggest man I've ever seen in my life. First Samuel describes him in detail. 
Notice he stands six cubits in a span. In our measurement system, he would be nine feet, nine inches tall. We're told some other interesting things. His name is Goliath. He's clad with armor. His armor, the bronze helmet, bronze coat, and armor that he wore on his body weighed approximately 125 pounds. That's a lot of armor. He had a javelin and a spear that was described like a beam of wood, a thick shaft of wood like a small log. Uh, historians say that based on the numbers that are given uh, by the narrator, the head of the spear alone weighed more than 17 pounds. Ahead of him marched a singular man who carried a shield large enough to protect his entire body. Think for a moment, uh, the man who protected him was a man who had to carry a piece of armor nine feet tall and about 24 or 26 inches wide. Having gotten their attention, Goliath didn't even need to say anything, but he strikes fear in the heart of the people of God in verses 8 through 10. Notice what he says. He comes down and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. Now, I want you to notice, I'm going to assume this morning that, that when Goliath spoke, he didn't say, hey, you guys, why don't you come down and fight me if you think you can? I'm going to imagine this morning that the way that that voice echoed in the valley was, why have you come down to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the army of Saul? Come down, let us fight. His words that echoed into the eardrums of the Israelites brought fear. You see, this morning, Goliath for us is a quintessential human being that believes that based on his stature, his success, or whatever temporal thing you can come up with, that he had the confidence that made him think he was unstoppable. You see, Goliath was filled with pride, with sinful emotion fueling his ambition. He had confidence focused in predominantly, almost altogether focused on himself. His faith was, was based on his huge frame, his strength and his ability to fight. Goliath appeared before the Israelites, listen, with total confidence, and he dared any man to prove him wrong. Some here this morning may not stand 10 feet tall in their body or carry around each and every day 100 pounds of armor. But in your heart, when you're at work or on the field or at play or some other aspect of your life, you go around with the knowledge that you are the best and nothing can stop you. See, Goliath is a picture of us who have confidence in ourselves, who dare anyone challenge our greatness. Well, on the other side of the valley, we have another character. Golden Goliath is not alone. We've got scared Saul. Scared Saul. And on the other side of the valley, we see this man, scared Saul. And who is he? He's the king of Israel. He's no slouch himself. In fact, let's remember, he's a handsome dude. He's a dude that, that is unlike any man in all of the nation of Israel. He's a head taller than his countrymen. 
And we learn that this great king is shivering in his boots at the very echo of Goliath's voice. Notice in verse 11 with us that when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, notice they weren't taken to arms. Notice they weren't filled with anger and, and, uh, and a focus to kill the man who was speaking such things. It didn't get their competitive juices flowing. It says, when Saul and Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. King Saul, now listen, he would have been the right guy to take Goliath out. He was the king. He was the protector and defender of his people. In fact, earlier in the text, when, when Samuel is told by the chief priests and leaders of Israel that they wanted a king, they wanted specifically, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a man who would fight their battles. But as we notice, for 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath would stand and Saul would cower. Saul found himself crippled in a place of fear. And he had no solution on what to do. He was unable to act. And, and listen, had David not stepped into that battlefield, I believe that Saul would still be standing in the same place today. For some of us, Saul hits close to home. We have things in our lives, like Saul did, that the very mention of them cause us to cower in fear. These things are constant reminders that we have no confidence in ourselves or in our God. That the person or issue that stands before us is greater than anything we can bring against them. And so we find ourselves paralyzed by fear. Day and night, we find ourselves crippled with our ability to live any kind of normal life. Notice, when Saul heard these words, he was not sitting and enjoying those 40 days and 40 nights. Regular life, normal life had come to an end. Saul only heard and saw one thing, and that was Goliath. He heard Goliath's voice and saw Goliath's shadow, and that's all he could think about or imagine. But whatever that giant is in your life this morning, like Saul, we are brought to our knees and have zero confidence that victory is within our sight. Scared Saul. The final character we see this morning is dependent David. When we begin our text, the final character, David, isn't even in the passage. He's back at home with his dad. He's tending his father's sheep. He gets in the situation through a simple request of his father. Notice verse 17. Jesse says to his son, hey, I want you to take your brothers some food. I want you to take uh, their bosses some cheese. He's trying to butter his, his kids' bosses up. And I want you, when you do that, to check in on them and bring back a report that though they're on the front lines, that everything is okay. And so David would do that. And so David finds himself at one point going and, and, and uh, addressing the needs that his father has given him. And while he does, the battle seems to come to him. Now, a couple things about David. We're told David is a good-looking man, but not one who we would think would be one who would be seen as a physical standout. He probably would be overlooked. It's proven when Samuel chooses him in chapter 16 that God has to remind him that you don't look at the outside of a man, but the heart. We know from the text that David has zero military experience, 
no real knowledge of dealing with giants. He has no human sign that he has a chance. But throughout the text, we see over and over and over again, every time David opens his mouth, he doesn't speak of his own gifts or his own abilities, nor does he speak of the giant and say, wow, that's a pretty crazy giant. That guy's big and finds himself paralyzed in some way. He always speaks about what God is doing and what God will do in the presence of his enemies. I want you to notice this morning that that's what you and I should be focusing in on. When the giants are before us, whatever they may be, we shouldn't cower in fear or have confidence in ourselves, but the things we should articulate to our giants and to others is that we serve a God who is greater than any giants in the land. We need to have a robust and secure confidence in the Lord who owns the battle, no matter who or what may be standing in our way. So if dependence on God produces confidence, why in the world do so many of us struggle with self-confidence or no confidence at all? Notice the second point this morning. Once we understand who is involved, the different categories of confidence, we look at its challenges. What challenges our confidence? If we're honest this morning, being dependent on God isn't an easy thing. Can I tell you this morning, this is an easy message to preach. Go kill the giants in your life. But then I think when those giants are standing before me, I learn the valuable truth that it's easy to preach and many times hard to live. Many of us, life right now isn't easy. Let's face it. Most of us, at some time or another, have been paralyzed with fear. So as we look at Saul and David's perspective, what did they see before them? What was their perspective? I want you to see three things this morning as we battle through the giants in our life that are, are either going to have us run away in fear or stand with confidence before that which is before us. And I want you to remember this morning that just as David stood before a giant, the Bible says each and every day for the Christian is one battle upon another. And most of us are going to face a series of battles and a series of giants in our life before our lives are done. But we have to ask the question this morning, what is a giant? If we were to simply take the text and say, okay, this truth that's in this scripture is used to help me when a nine-foot, nine-inch-tall giant is standing before me, then I'm going to tell you something. There's a good chance you'll never apply this text. When was the last time you stood before a seven-foot man? let alone a nine-foot one. I'm going to tell you it's probably pretty hard because if I remember right, the tallest man that's living right now is a little over eight feet tall. And so if you're going to apply this in a stringent um, way, then there's no application for you. If you simply say that, that what it is is a picture, and it is a picture of Christ, who is our great champion, well, that's some help. But I want us to remember that we're looking at this from a shattered perspective. That's been our focus this entire series. And so we're looking at a very famous passage of Scripture through a very different lens. So what's a giant? A giant is any situation or person in our path which blocks the way God wants us to go. It's any situation or person in our path which blocks the way God wants us to go. 
A giant could be a person who opposes you. It might be a combination of, of circumstances, which when they are taken together, keep us from doing what God wants us to do. But I want you to notice that every giant that we face, if it is truly a giant, first of all, we need to recognize is an adversary. Write that down. They're an adversary. You see, David and Saul had an opponent who left to themselves they knew that they could not defeat. And that was true of every man, every soldier in the nation of Israel. Notice in verse 23. In verse 23 it says that when, they, uh, when Goliath shows himself and articulates what's going to happen, all the men, it says, I'm sorry, in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. Well, I think it's safe to assume that you're not going to have a giant standing before you threatening you. We need to recognize in this text that just like Saul and David, we too have things that seek out our demise. People who want to make our lives miserable. There are those who want to seek to discredit our faith in the Scriptures and our faith in God. But what adversary are you facing this morning? For most of us, the greatest giants that we face are the ones from the inside. Doubt, unbelief, fear, anxiety, greed, sloth, gluttony, envy, despair, discouragement, self-condemnation, a fear of failure, a critical spirit, lust, and we can keep going. Usually those inner giants defeat us much quicker than any giant would on the outside. It's in the mind where the battle of David versus Goliath is fought many times in our lives. In that sense, some of you right now are facing a giant at this moment. And it may be an impossible situation at work, a huge problem within your home. Maybe it's financial difficulty. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a task before you that you know that you can't handle. It may be a dream that seems unreachable. Here's the thing we've got to remember. As we look at these giants, we've got to recognize giants by definition are enormous, threatening, intimidating. They scare the daylights out of us. And the closer they get to our lives, the bigger they become until we can't see anything else. We have adversaries. But notice these adversaries work against our, or with our anxieties. One of the ways giants win the day is by doing exactly what Goliath did. He preys on the people's emotion. Twice each day he would show himself, and each day he would speak in such a way that would fill them with fear. And each time the challenge went unmet. Goliath would stand up, he would threaten the people, and then he would go back to his camp. And even before a battle has even started, it's already done. For 40 straight days, twice a day, morning and evening, he would threaten and challenge the men of Israel. Each day there was some sort of taunting, and the same result. No one would challenge him. The people were losing the battle before it had even started. I wonder if each and every night the generals of the day got together and formulated plans. Okay, maybe this is what we'll do. Maybe that is what we'll do. And they talked strategy and tactics. 
Saul and his generals thinking of a solution, setting up some sort of model battlefield as to maybe how they can have victory. Maybe ending each meeting with a quick word of prayer, Lord, Lord, help us defeat the Philistine. They would go out there with a new sense of, of faith, a new sense of confidence, only to have Goliath come back up to see him and to hear him and for them to run away again. This practice went on for 40 days. Nobody knew what to do. Some this morning are facing a giant and you think, I can conjure up just enough confidence until that giant shows himself again and you find yourself once again like every other day before you running away in fear. Listen, it will only take one giant in our lives to stop us if we look at that giant from a human perspective. We see the giant ahead of us and he suddenly fills the view of our entire life and at ground level, we need to recognize giants will unglue us that we can't go on. The problem is, is not how big the giant is. Listen, it's how small the giant makes you feel. So small that you think you don't have a chance. You see, giants defeat us not because they're big, but because you and I believe we're small. Or even worse, we believe the giant is bigger than our God. It's in that moment that nothing else matters. We're struck dumb with fear and paralyzed with doubt. And there's no question that some of us are challenged with that this morning. Filled with anxiety. I was struck this week by a statistic that I found to create anxiety in me. And it was the fact that a third of American women and a tenth of American men today find themselves in some sort of anxiety medication. This tells me far too many people are seeing giants in their midst and are unable to be released from the reign of terror that it has over them as people. Let me remind you of a couple truths about giants. Number one, many giants are all bark and no bite. They can do all that they want to act tough, but in the end they don't put up a fight. I know it's past Halloween and we're now moving towards Christmas, and who can't can remember the story of Ralphie from A Christmas Story. Ralphie, the quintessential kid growing up in Midwest uh, America, uh, he's just a normal guy, normal kid with all the pitfalls and struggles, and one of his pitfalls and struggles is a bully. Every day he goes to school, and every day he comes home from school, the bully comes and terrorizes Ralphie, beats him up, has him running for his life. But that bully, at a moment of confidence in Ralphie's life, when Ralphie learns that he has a level of confidence in his own self and strength, stands up to the bully and fights him down. And what he learns very quickly is that the bully was all talk and no bites. Let's remember a second thing. That even the most powerful of giants in our life have weaknesses. First Peter tells us that we have the greatest of enemies, the devil, and that he describes the devil not as some puny little thing, but as a roaring lion who's roaming around seeking who he may devour. That's some pretty big words. That should shake us in our boots. But that same great enemy, the devil, the greatest enemy, greater than your anxiety, greater than the financial struggle, greater than the family issues that you're facing, the devil is greater than all of those things. And just a couple books later, the book of James says that when this roaring lion comes to destroy you, 
and you stand against him and resist him, he must flee from you. Well, the word flee means he runs for his life. Now, let me tell you something. If the devil, our greatest enemy, has to run for his life when we stand in the strength of Jesus Christ, so will whatever anxiety you are facing. Finally, giants always want to fight on their terms. Notice in the text, Goliath is the one, hey, you come to me. Bring one of your men to me. Let us fight. Goliath sets the terms by which the fight is going to take place. And there are anxieties and there are people who will determine when and where the battle is going to take place. Recognize this truth this morning. The battle was not Goliath's, nor was it David's, nor was it the peoples of Israel. The battle and its terms were with God because the battle belongs to the Lord. Some of us this morning need to change the way we look at the giant and see that the giant may be all bark and no bite. That maybe there are some weaknesses that maybe we need to fight it on the Lord's terms, not ours or the giant's. But notice what happens. One final thing that we see uh, with regards to the challenges is, and this one seems a little more obscure, are some of the alternatives as to how we'll fight the battle. David volunteers. He says in the text, hey, I'm going to go do it. Someone's got to kill this uncircumcised Philistine. He can't keep running his mouth. He can't keep defying God. Are you kidding me? Let someone get out there and put this guy to shame. Let's be done with him already. And the king hears about it. He says, hey, bring me the Yahoo that thinks he can kill Goliath. I, I want to talk with him. I've had a pretty rough 40 days and 40 nights. Some humor will help me. So bring me the crazy man. So David goes before him. And David begins to say, hey, I've had battles like this before, and I know exactly how to defeat him because I've got a God who's going to stand before me, the God who's going to steady my hand, the God that's going to give me strength to defeat the giant that's before me. And after that discussion takes place, Saul says, all right, the Lord be with you. And I think he's just sitting there probably as he's leaving, chuckling with his general, well, we have one less crazy man in Israel. And then, as a way if to say, you know what, a good king doesn't send a guy out without any defense. In verses 38 through 40, Saul says, hey, put on some of my armor. Put on some of my armor. Now, I want you to notice with the armor a couple truths that I want us to draw out this morning. He puts on the armor, and I want you to recognize this morning that had David gone and fought with the armor, a couple things would have taken place. Number one, David would have been protected for a season. The armor would have helped. Had he gone and fought Goliath, Goliath would have taken his spear and his javelin, and he would have started waving it at uh, David, and the Saul's um, armor would have protected him. It would have lessened the blows of Goliath. But the armor, listen, would have done nothing for him from an offensive standpoint. What I mean by that is while the armor would have prolonged the battle, it would have given David no opportunity for victory. So then that begs the question this morning, when you're fighting the giants in your life, are you seeking alternatives, listen, that prolong the battle but give you no opportunity for victory? 
Now, I'm going to be very specific this morning. Some of us, because of the giants in our life, we turn to all different kinds of other things. And we do do so because we don't want to face the giant face to face. We know if we do, we're done for. So we turn to the armor of this world. We turn to the things of this world that will prolong our lives before the giant, that give us an opportunity to be defensive but not offensive that allow us to take the beatings of the giant before us over and over again, never thinking that we can ever win the battle. Some of us use alcohol, illegal drugs. We talked about this not too long ago. Some of us are using prescription medication. Why? Because you can't get through the day. And so take the, take the medication because it will help you. It will lessen the blow that the giant of anxiety and the giant of depression and the giant of, of all of the calamity in your life will let you live another day. But listen, that medication, that drug, that pleasure, whatever you're doing to prolong the battle will never allow you to win the war. And David recognizes it. David says, I'm not going out there to take a beating. I'm going there to kill that uncircumcised Philistine. He's a dead man, so I don't need armor. I don't need something that's going to allow him to beat up on me. I need a weapon that's going to kill this giant once and for all. And he says, so get this stuff off me. Well, it may help me for a season. It will not help me in the long run. And so what David does is he moves from fear to faith, and with, with God's people watching, he moves from their doubt to dependence on God. I've got God on my side. And whatever weapon I use in offense, God's going to use to destroy this giant. That moves us to the final point this morning, the characteristics of godly confidence. How does he do it? How does he stand in the way of a giant? No matter the anxiety and fear you may be feeling, I want you to notice that the first thing David does, listen, notice the narrator, by the way. The narrator uses the first 11 verses to talk about Goliath. I think he does so for a reason. I think he wants you and I to recognize this morning that the only thing that Saul and the people of Israel could think about was the giant before him. Have you noticed that when David talks, he doesn't even acknowledge when he uses words, he uses words that diminish the giant that doesn't elevate him. He speaks in such a way, to be quite honest with you, in such a bold way that he speaks to the very essence that all Goliath is is just a man. He's just that uncircumcised Philistine. He's got the same, and I'm not trying to be funny, he's got the same parts I do. We're no different. You guys are making this guy out to be a superstar, and he's just like us. He's yapping just like us. Who haven't we seen yap in the Israelite camp who hasn't uh, had to be put into his place? This is just a bigger dude that needs to be put in his place. David stands before the great giant with great confidence. Listen, because he chooses not to look at the giant, but to look to his God. He's the only one who sees the giant as very small. Why? Because he's big? No. He sees Goliath as small because God being very big. Let's do David's math. The math is the following. What is a nine-foot giant before the God of the universe? 
Some of you this morning have a giant before you. Maybe it's your boss, and he's looming large on a Sunday because Mondays are coming, and you sit there, and the, 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 the giant in your life, your boss, man, he controls everything. He controls whether I have a job. He controls whether I'm going to get a pay increase. He controls what, what clients I'm going to get. Man, that guy controls everything. And I want you to ask the question this morning, does your boss make sure the sun rises? Does your boss hold the celestial stars in the heavenly galaxies together? Did your boss create the world by the power of his word? Did the, did the uh, boss that you have create man out of the dust of the earth? Your boss, with all due respect, is just an ordinary guy like you and me. Comparison to the living God. We need to stop doing math based on our figures and start doing them with God's. Which one's greater, your trials, your giants, or God? Peter got this. Remember the apostle Peter? He writes in his epistle to the church. He says, hey, remember when trials and tribulations come, hey, remember this. From our perspective, they will kill us. From God's perspective, they are light and momentary trials. Now you'd say, hey, Peter, quit being a Pollyanna. You don't know what you're talking about. Tradition tells us a matter of two years after he writes those words in 1 Peter, he will watch his wife be taken by the Romans and hung on a cross. To which he will say, stay true, my love, to Christ. He will then be taken. And pleading that they don't crucify him as they crucified his Savior, Peter would be hung upside down on a cross, all the while praying to his God, these are but light and momentary trials amidst your glory. When we look at our trials and troubles from a godly perspective, listen, they will get very, very small you will begin to recognize that what you're worried about isn't something all that big when it comes to God. It may be huge to you, but to God, it is small. I want you to notice, listen, that nowhere in those 40 days and 40 nights did God waste any time worrying about Goliath. And if we're followers of this God, if we're children of the living King, why would the Bible tells us, be anxious for nothing. He doesn't say, hey, be anxious for things that are nine feet, nine inches tall, but everything else you don't have to worry about. God says, if you believe in me, you don't have to be anxious about anything. We don't have to worry because God is with us. So how does he do it? A couple things. Notice, how do we get there? We have to be empowered by the Spirit. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, write this passage down. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, we are told that when, when David is um, anointed to be king of Israel, that the Spirit of God rushes upon him. He had confidence because of the one who indwelt him. Now let's be reminded that the Spirit's filling was temporary in Old Testament times. We know that because of 1 Samuel 16, 14. The Spirit of God rushes upon uh, David, and it says one verse later that the Spirit of God left Saul. And so I want to encourage you this morning. We don't live in the times of Saul and David. We don't live in the times where the Holy Spirit comes and goes in your life. The same Spirit that indwelt temporarily David is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, and we are promised over and over again in the New Testament that he lives and resides 
permanently with you and me. That same spirit that gave him the confidence to stand before a nine-foot giant is the same spirit that fills you today. But the question is this morning, will you and I, like David, allow him to empower us? Notice the second thing. Once we're empowered by the spirit, we must state our faith amidst the trial. Verses 45 and 46 For the first time in all of this long passage, I know it's long, I just read it before you guys. It's a long passage of Scripture. Who's doing all the talking? The giants. Until David steps up. And David says the following, David said to the Philistine, you come with me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And then it's all the gory stuff. Body and all that, but Sunday morning. Okay? Amidst the trial, David stands and speaks words. But I want you to notice, he doesn't speak words, hey, uh, I, David, the guy that's killed some bears and lions, I, David, who, who uh, is really good at the slingshot's going to kill you, he says, no, hey, I serve a God, and this God wants you dead. And some of us need to ask the question this morning. When the Goliaths stand before us, what are we speaking? Are we cowering in fear like Saul? Or are we saying, hey, The Word of God says some things about you, giant. Listen to what I believe was going on through David's mind when he's articulating this. Listen, Goliath, I want to make something clear to you today. You're as good as dead. You have come, and I want you to recognize you're standing there with all your confidence, but this is what I want you to know. The God who is on my side, he made you. The God who is on my side brought you to this place. The God who's on my side gave you your size, gave you the air to breathe so that you could defy God and his people. And my God, the God who is on my side, owns this battle, and you're a dead man walking. How many of us this morning are struggling with anxiety? Would that anxiety end if we stood before God and talked like that? Let me remind you of something you need to do. When you are facing giants, you need to declare that the giant standing before you is there because God's allowed it. God's allowed it. Again, Goliath wasn't, God wasn't like, where did Goliath go? We got, hey, that guy's fast. Where's he at today? God knew exactly where Goliath was at. He recognized that that puny giant from Gath was no match for him. And David knew it as well. Listen, in the moments of warfare, just as David did, make the word of God your battle cry. It may mean you need to stand alone. I need to get moving here. We're running out of time. This is where things can get rough. God wasn't calling an army but a man. In fact, David was surrounded by two types of people, and you will too when you take big steps of faith. You'll stand around the cowards. That's all the soldiers of Israel, scared to death, running for their lives. And the critics, I wish I could get into more of this, but David's eldest brother, Eliab, rebukes him for standing for his faith. And yet amidst all of that, David goes it alone. And sometimes God sees fit to send you through the valley of the shadow of death on your own. And you must go and fight without any human help at your side. But David understands a truth that he wrote in Psalm 23. 
that in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with him. God's rod and staff comfort him, that he may dine in the company of his enemies. Listen, you are never alone when you're fighting your giant. God is always with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And when we remember that truth, that the one who is with us is greater than the one who is before us, we will always find victory and never defeat. One final thing he does is he was sure of God's promises. He was sure of God's promises. David stood before the giant with confidence because of two important elements. First, a practical one, one that you need to remember. In 1 Samuel 16, God anoints David to be what? Help me out very quickly. What is he going to be? King. Okay? When he's standing before Goliath, is David king? No. David says, hey, God promised me a throne. And I'm not on a throne yet. So this giant isn't going to kill me. But let's say he faltered a little bit in his faith, said, wait a minute, maybe it was symbolic. Maybe it was a metaphorical uh, throne. Here's what David understood. David understood whether I am king on earth or dead in heaven, it's all good. And what we need to recognize this morning is that if God leaves us here to be victorious on earth or he allows the uh, giant in our life to take our lives, we understand there's victory in heaven. He knew his anointing meant something. As a child of God, God has anointed you with promises that you in the end will be victorious. The second thing you need to understand is that God protected him in seasons of battle before the lion and the bear. He had seen God work in his life, and David had confidence in the God who had come through for him time and time again. Let me remind you this morning that when giants come before you, rehearse the things God has done in your lives over and over again in your mind. Remind yourself that the things you worried about, listen, one of the things I've learned is when worry and anxiety comes, and it does, it's a thing I struggle with, when it, when it comes in my life, I have to remind myself about the last thing I worried about. And usually I can't remember what it was. And that should be a reminder that God took care of it at that point. Why in the world should I sit there and worry about it now? This is why, listen, why small groups are so important for us as a church. Once a week we get together and and we help one another, remind one another that that God has done great things in our midst. So you come into small group, you come into church and you're broken down, you're filled with anxiety. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what this giant's going to do in my life. I I don't know. It looks like it's going to be bad. And someone in your small group says, hey, let me tell you something. I was struggling with something and God came through. We encourage one another. We put courage into one another so that we can battle in our day. So this morning, what's the giant that's facing you? What giant is before you that seemingly has your number that you have no match for? Run to God. Put your faith in Him. Find your hope in Him. Draw your strength from Him, and He will sustain you. And He will take care of your giant in His timing and in His way. He'll show you the victory, but you must be dependent on Him must do it his way. David did. And he had courage and confidence. Saul did it his way. And he cowered in fear. Goliath did it his way. And we know what happened to him. Choose God's way. And the confidence will come. Let's pray.
Father God, we come before you, and again, Lord, thank you for your people and their willingness to sit and to listen to the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that they would apply these truths rightly into their lives, that they would do some evaluation this morning as you have forced in me to ask the question on where my confidence is. And Lord, I pray that as we do that evaluation, we will see areas where we lack dependence on you. Lord, I know there are people, I know personally people who are struggling with great trials in their lives right now, where that giant in their life is wreaking havoc before them. Lord, we hold true and hold fast to the promises of your word that say whatever enemy is before us is no match for our God. You are able to accomplish what concerns me today. Give us that confidence. Empower us with it so that we may stand humbly and yet valiantly before the giants in our land. And in do so, just as David did, bring you glory and honor when you conquer them and destroy them before us. Now, Lord, send us into the land of giants with a new level of confidence so that we may no longer live shattered lives, but lives that are living on purpose for you. Now send us forth now, Lord, to fellowship and encourage one another, that we may show one another the glorious things you've done this week in our lives, that we may put courage in the lives of others. Send us forth now in fellowship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.